0: Welcome back to Get Heard. Something a little bit different. Now, usually on the podcast, we showcase some of the great podcasts that we produce here in the Radio studio. We're going to change tack this month, and uh, we've got a very special guest. He's got a new documentary out called Bondi Forever, and he's here to talk about that and growing up in the eastern suburbs. Kerry Jenkins is his name. Third generation in Bondi. His grandparents moved here way back in 1914, and his mother and father met outside the historic Bondi Surf Club. Terry was born in 1947 and his entire family is entrenched in everything to do from the surf club, Bondi Icebergs, the Bondi Amateur Swimming Club, East Rugby and of course the local board riders clubs. He's the brainchild and executive producer behind the new doco titled Bondi Forever. The show premieres Sunday the 18th of November at 7.30 and you can catch it on National Geographic Channel on the Fox Network. The doco itself has already been picked up in more than 55 countries around the world, and two of our major airline carriers will be screening it on both international and domestic flights. He took over 100 hours of footage, and the docker is dedicated to the people of Bondi itself. He's been kind enough to join us here today. Terry Jenkins, welcome to Get
1: Heard. Thank you very much, Cooper. It's great to be here. It's great to see you looking so well.
0: So it was a bit of a mouthful, that intro, Tez, but Obviously, your family is ingrained in Bondi all the way back in 1914. But yourself, you were born in 1947, so you grew up in the 50s. Tell us, what was Bondi like back then?
1: Well, when I grew up in Bondi, it was uh, certainly a, a different Bondi to what we have today. But uh, you mentioned my father coming to Bondi with my grandparents in 1914. Of course, uh, my grandparents arrived uh, because it was healthy salt air in Bondi and every morning my grandfather would make my father and three uncles, all Bondi boys, go down to the beach and gargle the salt water. Is that right? That's right, that's right.
0: And what about yourself as a young bloke through the 50s? You mentioned there it was a lot different of what it was today. I suppose it would have been a lot more community like-minded. What was it like growing up in the area?
1: It was an amazing place. Cooper, because yes, it was community-based. Let me say that you either knew everyone, if you didn't know everyone, you knew their cousin, or you knew the person that lived across the road. You had your own cousins living uh, further down the road, and if you didn't know the kids, well, your parents knew each other from uh, the surf clubs or the icebergs or even the, the local hotels. There was no getting away from it. You were recognised and uh, it was a pretty, pretty comfortable place because uh, people looked out for each other.
0: And very much an open-door policy, no doubt.
1: Indeed, it was an open-door policy. I think Bondi, I could say, was multicultural before the politicians ever uh, tried to grab that concept. Bondi worked on the basis, hey, you can come here, you respect us, We'll respect you, and let's share this beautiful place.
0: Just on that, what were some of the different nationalities that, that were in, obviously it was post-war, so I know there would have been a, a quite a large Jewish contingent in Rose Bay and areas around Vaucluse, but what other um, you know, races were around Bondi at the time?
1: Well, of course, uh, I was uh, brought onto this beautiful earth after the Second World War, and a lot of the people that came to Bondi were refugees from the Second World War, as well as from England, uh, because England had been bombed into virtual submission, as, as we all know, and these people were coming out with their kids, looking for a better life, looking for a healthy life, and they found that uh, at Bondi, and I can honestly say that they were welcome. There wasn't any time at school when new kids weren't arriving into the class, and some of them arrived not speaking any English Within two weeks, they were playing football in Dixon Park and they were talking English.
0: Terry, moving on to the documentary, you know, you had a pretty successful legal business. You were busy with your karate and everything else that you were doing at the time. What prompted you to get into the documentary filmmaking?
1: Cooper, I'd wanted to do a documentary on Bondi to tell the Bondi story for quite some time. I was tired of seeing sort of little mini-documentaries made by people talking about Bondi people that they didn't know. They were talking about events that they were never at, and they were talking about places that they'd never been to. They weren't really grasping what Bondi was about, and I felt that the Bondi people, if they were going to have a documentary done in relation to Bondi, then they should present it, and I wanted to present it, and I wanted. To lead that. And that sort of pushed me towards uh, setting up the documentary. But further to that, at the same time, I was pushing very hard and had done for a couple of years for a surfing museum to be set up in the pavilion. Bondi Beach,
0: it's iconic, you know, not only here in Australia, but, but recognised internationally. You know, I said in the intro it's already been played in over 55 countries around the world. Did you think it was going to have so much impact?
1: Everybody knows Bondi, and there is no doubt in the world that the Pavilion is probably better known around the world than uh, Parliament House in Canberra. And I'll tell you, I know for a fact, uh, and perhaps we'll get into it uh, further down in this interview, that the faces of the Bondi lifeguards are better known than the Australian politicians, and it appears they're loved.
0: I was lucky enough to be part of not only the documentary, but the secret premiere that we had down at the pavilion. When you created it, was there anything in particular you wanted regarding the presentation of the docker?
1: There was one thing that I wanted from the outset, and that was I wanted it told by Bondi people. And I made that very clear to uh, the producer... Richard Scotts, who I knew had a good background with pro-surfing, filming pro-surfing documentaries. He'd done some uh, documentaries in relation to uh, the lifeguards at Bondi, and he'd also done uh, some of the World Cup rugby documentaries, all of which were very successful. And when I spoke to uh, Richard, I made it very clear, hey, I want you to capture the spirit of Bondi. And the spirit of Bondi is the people. That's what you've really got to be able to uh, capture. And uh, that was the basis upon which we, uh, you know, I directed him to go forward.
0: When you talk about the spiritual attachment there, what do you actually mean?
1: The Bondi I grew up in was a Bondi where people looked out for each other. We knew each other. There was an equality. So it didn't matter whether you came from the mansion on the hill or you were from a rent control flat, once the magnet took you down to that beach, you were all equal. And equal in the sense that you wanted to be equal, because that was one of the beautiful things about Bondi, and I can see it to a degree today still being passed on. The fact was, I think, in Bondi, after the war, as I grew up in the 1950s, there were a lot of fathers and a lot of brothers and a lot of sons and so forth that had come back from the war, and they were pretty knocked about. And you found different families used to look out for each other and look out for the person down the road, and that was a spirit that really had left a, a mark on my soul because I saw goodness, camaraderie, kindness, all of these things from people who came from all walks of life. Whether the rich, the poor, regardless of religion, regardless of race, we looked out for each other. And that's that's the spirit that I thought uh, always uh, was there in Bondi. And I felt very comfortable with that. And the beauty of the whole thing being that we had as our backyard a magnificent beach. We all enjoyed our backyard.
0: That sense of looking out for one another, do you, do you feel that that's probably not as prevalent as it was back in your day? Is that missing from the Bondi of today?
1: Well, perhaps I could just give an example of what I experienced. And that is often you would see um, gatherings of, of Bondi people on a hot night up on the air raid shelters and out the front of the flats because we didn't have air conditioning and so on. And next minute, one mother would turn up for the whole you know say so the whole block or the next block next to next to it with cut up watermelons and everybody would be talking and uh, interrelating and gathering and of course one of the mothers may have been doing it tough because things that were happening within the home you know the father who was still doing it tough or may have lost his job or whatever and you'd hear another mother say you know love send them kids over to my place, I'll keep them for the day. So they were then fed and looked after to give her neighbour a bit of respite. That sort of thing used to go on often and no-one ever queried it uh, and it was uh, just accepted that if you're doing it tough, your neighbour would uh, step in and look after you. And I found that, uh, in retrospect, I found that you know quite amazing because I don't think you would see that uh, these days. Another thing that struck me, and again, it's in retrospect, I realised just how how magnificent it was, is that we didn't have the big supermarkets in those days and people would run up a tab at the local uh, store. And often, at about five o'clock, you'd see all the kids head down the store to get a pound of sugar or a pound of flour or whatever it might have been. And some kid would come in, he'd order his pound of sugar or, or whatever tea or whatever and of course the the tab was overdue and the shopkeeper would sort of try to tell the usually a boy that uh, the tab was overdue, then a neighbour would sort of step in, look at the shopkeeper, give the nod and fix the tab up and step away. It was something, there was nothing said, it was just acknowledged, it was not a tax deductible gift, it was simply Bondi people looking out for Bondi people who are doing it tough and it's in retrospect I feel very proud to have been part of that community.
0: Speaking of Bondi people and the community there's quite a few uh, well-known characters slash identities in the documentary. How did you go about interviewing them? What was the process?
1: Well, when I I decided uh, and shook hands with Richard Scotts, then we thought, well, now we're going to have to put uh, everyone together. And uh, uh, some, of course, had uh, moved up the coast and down the coast and so forth. And uh, we got onto the emails. Uh, We certainly traced uh, world champions. We traced old Bondi boys. We traced uh, old legends up and down the coast. Some still uh, lived in uh, Bondi, but we were able to put it together and those that we couldn't find, we got Red Ted Sullivan out on, on the job and he uh, he seemed to know not only where they were, he could tell me what they had for breakfast. So uh, that was an amazing little uh, venture that we had. And Let me say that once the word went out and once we asked people to assist, they stepped to the mark without any... Uh, any challenge or any buffering or whatever, they were quite willing to go. And these were uh, some very, very top people.
0: Well, I think that's because everyone's proud of growing up in the area. Everyone does have a story to tell. And, you know, some of the characters, you you mentioned Red Ted, who, I uh, like to think is the the local resident historian or the unofficial resident historian. But you spoke to Shane Horan, a world champion in his own right, Pauline Menza, female world champion, and then there's icons of the area and local legends like the H-Man, Harry. So they've all got a story to tell.
1: Well, uh, the H-Man, I knew the H-Man when he was just a cheeky young brat and uh, he was a, a fabulous young kid, as was his dad, He was a great guy. His father, Salty Nightingale, and his brother Nicky and his other younger brother, Ray. I used to have lunch there after we'd swim at Bondi Swimming Club together. I'd have lunch in his place at Lamrock Avenue. And I've seen uh, seen a bit of Harry, and uh, I called Harry and uh, said, Harry, I want you to come up. And Harry was uh, certainly ready, willing and able. And the same went with Shane Horan. These were people whose stories should be told. They should be recorded and they should be recorded properly and that was one of the things that I wanted to do. But there were other guys uh, from the old Wind and Sea Club. We had Tony Rule, for example, one of the founders of the South Bondi Surfboard Riders Club which housed such greats as uh, Scotty Dillon. These, these are legends of Bondi. Pauline Metzer took us into her home we had a great time talking to Pauline, a very humble world champion, but people didn't realise or people don't realise just what she battled to be a champion. And it was, it was so humbling to be with her because she, in fact, was so humble. She thanked us for remembering her. And I looked at Pauline and said, Pauline, I said, you know, you were the number one in the world. You know, you were the champion. How could we forget you? And not only
0: board riders, but of course the surf club, the Icebergs, all the clubs in and around the area. It's been a great breeding ground of champions.
1: Absolutely. We uh, we interviewed none other than Cyril Baldock, the oldest the oldest man to swim the English Channel. And of course, Cyril's background is just unbelievable. He And his brother Teddy, uh, young Teddy, true Bondi boys. Cyril started swimming at Bondi Amateur Swimming Club because he had respiratory problems as a young boy and his uh, dad thought that swimming may help him. Well, I don't think he stopped swimming since he dived in as a seven-year-old and he just keeps swimming laps of Bondi Beach. He is amazing. And that's uh, something, Cooper, which really needs to be exhibited, the fact that we have the oldest person to swim the English Channel with Cyril, also young Waverley boy, the youngest swimmer to swim Ned the English Wyland. Channel. Yeah, Ned Weiland. And uh, uh, here they are. Ned Weiland is a little bit of a classic because he swam the English Channel, came back to Australia, stopped off at San Francisco, and then he swam around the, uh, the jail the famous Alcatraz, giant. yeah. Yeah, he did the Alcatraz swim and that was just for good measure on the way home. And I'm, these are just heroes of, uh, of, of Bondi that just go along with the flow and that's something that Bondi should be proud of.
0: Tez, you often refer to the word heroes or champions. Do you feel that they're sufficiently remembered, acknowledged for what they've done in the area?
1: Absolutely not, Cooper. And it's something that uh, is very dear to my heart. People just don't understand the contribution that Bondi has made to not only life-saving, not only swimming, but also surfing. And this is something that I feel needs to be explored and I hope really it will be rectified when we get the surfing museum up. For example, I'll give you a very good example. Few kids now appreciate that a person who was once called the greatest swimmer of all time, the greatest swimmer of all time, and who by? By the International Swimming Hall of Fame. And who endorsed that? The American Olympic swimming coaches, two of them, called him the greatest swimmer of all time, the late Murray Rose. Now, Murray Rose, as a young boy, I would sit down with about 1,000 other kids and look at Murray, who was probably a 16-year-old, diving in at Bondi Baths to swim uh, with the uh, Saturday morning races for Bondi Amateur Swimming Club. He would be, you know, up and down that pool. He was our hero. And there, the great Murray Rose changed the whole method, the whole strategy for long-distance swimming, and that's not acknowledged the greatest swimmer of all times. Never forget those words, uh, endorsed externally, and yet I don't know of one Clark memory to acknowledge this. But on top of that, on top of that, what did this great swimmer do? He came back to Bondi. He came back to Bondi with the Olympics and stayed on and then became a member of North Bondi Surf Club where he then taught disabled kids how to swim in the surf so that they could enjoy Bondi Beach. You think about that, it's pretty marvellous, but that's that's only one. If you go, you know, further up...
0: Well, who are some of the other heroes that you refer to, Terry?
1: Well, for example, people don't realise that the whole surf life-saving movement, the world movement for surf life-saving, commenced down at Bondi. Bondi was the club that started the first surf life-saving club and, furthermore, we all look at that life-saving reel. That was invented by Lister Ormsby, number one member of Bondi's surf club. And how did he do it? Well, it was very simple. He was trying to work out how he could bring people who were drowning into the beach and he sat uh, just off uh, Campbell Parade with his sister, who was a seamstress, and he was talking to her, how could I do this, you know, how can we get them in? They were thinking of putting floats out there, and he watched his uh, sister using the old, I assume it was a Singer sewing machine, and he saw the cotton coming out on the reel. It twigged straight away. He said, we will make a reel, we'll set it up. He got another Bondi boy to assist with the... Uh, with the making of the reel. And then there it was. The iconic surf life-saving reel came from Bondi, as did the method of resuscitation. That was also a Bondi uh, invention, and one of the doctors uh, who was a club member of of Bondi uh, Surf Club arranged that. But if you go further down, you get down... Even the rubber surfer plane is a Bondi invention. It started at Bondi with that famous beach inspector, Stan McDonald, whose family carried on the surfer plane, hire business uh, at Bondi for, for, you know, several generations. There was Stan, he was the famous uh, lifeguard. Basil, uh, his son, he was the uh, also the president of Bondi Surf Club, the president of Bondi Amateur Swimming Club at the time Murray Rose was swimming. And then Neil and Bruce, the two boys, also looked after Bondi. It goes further in relation to surfing. I think it's drastically overlooked of what Bondi's contribution was uh, to modern-day surfing because you had in the basements of some of the flats just off Campbell Parade and up in little tin sheds up in, uh, off Wellington Street, as we know, the modern surfboards were actually being built by the likes of Noel Wood, Scotty Dillon. Gordon Woods is another um, who's who's on the documentary uh, interviewed. These were the pioneers in modern-day surfing and the development of the surfboard. And, of course, today, people don't realise it, the greatest surfer was probably Kelly Slater. And what does Kelly do? He flies into Australia to talk to Greg Weber, another Bondi boy, as to the making of his surfboards. If you think about it, Bondi has had a massive hand in the development of what is now internationally acknowledged sport and the Bondi boys sort of sat back and just sort of took it. Well, it's all part of the game. We enjoyed it.
0: We're a very insular kind of community down there at the beachfront. So when it came to picking your team, I guess, to create the documentary, uh, you mentioned him a couple of times in the interview already, Rich Scott's do you believe he's going to be able to appreciate this history? Do you think, like, did it take him a while to to come to terms with it and come to grips with it?
1: That's a very interesting question, Cooper. Because when I first spoke to uh, Rich Scotts, he was talking more of an historical line. He understood Black Sunday. Not many people do realise uh, that the greatest surf rescue. In world history took place out the front of the pavilion at uh, Bondi, and it's acknowledged. And, you know, that in itself deserves a documentary. Um, but it took a while for Richard to grasp the feeling that people have for Bondi. And during the course of interviews, he was sort of left a little bit, uh, dumbfounded because, of course, some people who hadn't been at bondi for some time started to talk about the place they continued they always called their home and started to tear up and these were pretty uh, important uh, important people he also realized i think there that uh, when he saw the contributions made towards such movements as the nippers the bondi ice cubes over at the icebergs and also the the Grom's uh, down at Bondi Board Riders, that he realized that people in Bondi actually try to give back and pass on this spirit and he did make mention of that to me.
0: I actually picked a lot of that up in the in the doco itself. I thought that was really well portrayed, yeah. Now for yourself, when you went and sat through all the rushes of the footage, you know, you, you filmed over a hundred hours of footage. Were there any surprises in it for you?
1: The big surprise I found uh, just doing this documentary generally was that two hours wouldn't be enough. This ha- needs to be a mini series. In fact, there are so many stories within stories, even there could be a documentary just on h man's Father, for example, there could be a uh, a documentary just on just on Black Sunday. There could be, for example, the three Hutchings brothers, like the three Hutchings brothers were icons. But no one, no one really knows that uh, Benny Hutchings, uh, for example, uh, was uh, not only a great uh, surfer off the point at Ben Buckler. And by the way, his real name's Terry. They call him Ben after Ben Buckler. But he's been to four Olympic Games. He's received all sorts of awards for his ability in sport, coaching, and so forth. And I, I did speak to Ben, uh, as a matter of fact, when we were in Queensland. We were interviewing him, and I said mate, you know, how do you feel? You know, uh, when you were going up to get that award, you must have been nervous. And he said to me, he said, I wasn't nervous. He said, the only thing I was worried about is they'd find out about all the things I did in Bondi in my youth. He said, he thought that'd be the end. But we had a good laugh. But uh, Benny, his brother Brian, was a fantastic surfer, fantastic surf swimmer. As a young boy, he made some of the old hands... uh, just sort of sit up and watch. And, of course, Lee uh, Hutchings, who still swims down at Bondi every morning, Lee was a musician. He gave away his trade, became a musician, and uh, he was so good, Frank Sinatra wanted him to play down at uh, the Chequers' nightclub.
0: Now, you've decided to dedicate the show to your your late mum and dad, but also to the people of Bondi. What's the significance
1: of that? I just wanted people to understand that... uh, Bondi just didn't happen. Bondi came about because of the efforts of some wonderful, tight-knit people who really weren't all that ego-driven. The whole idea at Bondi was to give back. And that's, I think, what a lot of, a lot of the Bondi people did. They respected the fact that they had a beach, That was their backyard and they would do what they could for the community. They would do what they could and and that is shown perhaps in the surf life-saving movement where for no money people would uh, patrol the beach and carry out rescues and so forth. But don't ever forget also that the board riders probably pull in just as many drowning people and, you know, I for one have pulled people in and uh, you put them on a board, next minute they throw up on you and uh, uh, so on. and But it's all part of being, Absolutely. being part of Bondi. And uh, also, you know, we hear about those larrikins, the icebergs, and that's what they are, larrikins. But remember, there's been days when the surf was so big that no one could get out to rescue the people who were drowning. And the icebergs have gone over the side without a whimper. Swum out, done their best to pull in someone, uh, all again, just a contribution back to their beach. And that's what I think... Uh, uh, so when I say the uh, uh, people of Bondi, it's those people who have embraced Bondi, those people that call Bondi their home, those people who show respect all the time for this beach, that's who I've made the documentary for.
0: And Terry, what about the title, Bondi Forever, where did you get that from?
1: During the course of interviews, I listened very carefully. There were words that kept coming up. One was, of course, Bondi, the other was home, and the other was forever. And that just didn't happen. That just didn't happen. Uh, it was uh, quite amazing as we started to get into the different interviews, the different discussions and hearing people talk always came back to the fact that Bondi was their home. It was the place that they really felt spiritually attached to. It was the place where they considered it was a, a forever. Their association would go on for a lifetime. It would go on forever. So those were the three words that I heard and I threw it around a little bit and it was interesting, I could remember... And it's a while back now, but I remember, uh, Shane Horan being interviewed and, uh, Shane said, I'm a Bondi boy. It's Bondi forever and we're the lucky ones. He said that anyway. Some months later, we were having breakfast, uh, down at, uh, Lamrock uh, Cafe. He'd come into Sydney and he and I were having breakfast and I was talking uh, about the doco and uh, the documentary and, Shane said, oh, by the way, he said, what's the title? And I said, Bondi Forever. And he looked up at me and he said, spot on. He said, you've nailed it. Well, it's a great show.
0: I'm glad that I was lucky enough to be part of it. Terry, thanks so much for coming in and sharing your story. You're a resident encyclopedia of everything that's gone on in and around the eastern suburbs. It's called Bondi Forever. It premieres Sunday, the 18th of November at 7.30 p.m., on the National Geographic Channel on Fox. Tez, thanks so much for joining us.
1: My pleasure, Cooper. We'll see you out the back in the lineup. Don't pick on me, I'm an old guy these days. You always <laughs> get a cup on <laughs> me. Thanks, Tez.